I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett recording after that brutal Celtics loss in Game 3 to the Miami Heat as they go down three games to none, and it really appears that All signs are pointing to major changes happening to this organization in the offseason, the way that things have transpired. We'll get into those in a little bit, but let's just start with the players because there's certainly issues with the coach. We talked a lot about the coach after game two. I'll get to him in a bit here, but I do want to start with the players because Jalen was flat out bad for the third consecutive game in this series. He was really bad in game two. The numbers were awful with Jalen Brown. You just look at the lack of impact that he's had in this series. Game two on the court, Jalen, 38 minutes, a minus 24, 92.1 offensive rating, 125.3 defensive rating, a 33.2 in the negative net rating. So they were getting outscored by 33.2 points per 100 possessions with Jalen on the court. Off the court, the Celtics in those 10 minutes were a plus 18 without Jalen, 166.7 offensive rating, 77.3 defensive rating, 89.4 net. This team has been way better in the series with Jalen Brown off the court than on the court. He has been a massive negative, and in the game tonight, he is a game-worst minus 25. He finishes with 12 points on 6 of 17 shooting. He's 0 of 7 from deep. Oh, and by the way, three turnovers. So, so far in this series, Jalen Brown is 17 of 44 in the first two games. So you add these games tonight, it's 23 of 61, 37.7% from the field, and two of 20 from three-point territory. Pretty easy to do that math. It's 10%. In this series, the Celtics with Jalen Brown, their second best player, second team All-NBA guy, they have been outscored by 46 points, almost 50 points they've been outscored by with Jalen Brown on the court. So from my perspective, Obviously, there's issues across the board. This has been the number one issue for the Celtics. Jalen Brown has not been nearly good enough for a guy that wants a Supermax. He has been an absolute disaster in this series. Complete no-show. And look, maybe we're going to find out 
that the hand is worse, the injury there is worse than it is, but he's on the court right now and you need him to be better. And he has been absolutely atrocious in the series. Okay. He's been horrible. And I just think about some of the plays tonight. He bricks a wing three second possession of the game. He was then dropped by Bam at a bio. Bam made him fall over with a spin move. And then how about the fact he just fell and lost the ball when it was 28 to 20 and the Heat get a layup on the other end from Caleb Martin. This is stuff we always see with Jalen Brown in terms of the turnovers. And then at the end of the half, one of the most clueless decisions you will see from a good basketball player. The Celtics should take the final shot of the half. They get the ball with about 21 seconds left. And it's 61-46. If you hit a shot at the end of the half, they're okay. Maybe you go into the locker room with some level of momentum, right? Jalen with 10 seconds left at the end of the half took a three, a contested wing three. I don't know what the fuck he's thinking. First of all, even if you hit that three, the Heat get the ball back, right? And it's a contested three. It's not a good three to begin with. Why are you taking that shot? I mean, he hasn't hit threes all series long, and he decides with 10 seconds left at the end of the half, he's going to throw up a contested wing three. That's just low basketball IQ shit. That is unacceptable from a guy of Jalen Brown's stature in the league. And then there was another three in the first half where he's like waiting for Jason Tatum to cut. Tatum is defended. It's not like the shot clock is rolling down. He's almost basically near the hash mark, so to speak. He just jacks up a three. (laughs) Again, he can't hit threes and he's jacking that three up. So Tatum was bad tonight too, and we'll get to him. No way around it. But Jalen, he's been horrible all series. I just, I could never imagine if you told me before the series, hey, the second best player on the team is going to be a minus 46. And not to mention, like, his defense has been bad. His ball handling, as we alluded to, has been bad. His decisions have been bad. Two decisions in the game tonight. Those are bad decisions. Why would you take that three? And the other thing you notice about Jalen, it's really starting to weigh on him. The frustration, the aggravation from the series, because usually we see this with Tatum. We see it with Marcus Smart. We saw it tonight. We actually see it with Grant Williams a little bit. But Jalen... We don't ordinarily see him constantly yelling at the officials. There's plenty of guys in the Celtics that do it, Tatum being the main guy, but Jalen doesn't do it nearly as much as Tatum. And Jalen was doing it the whole game tonight, just complaining to the officials. That's the number one reason the Celtics are down 3 nothing in this series. And I'm not saying that Tatum was outstanding in this game. He was horrible. Don't get me wrong. But Jalen hasn't shown up for the series. He hasn't shown up at all to this series. That's the number one reason this team is down 3 nothing right now. And I think you have, and I'll get into this in a second here, real legitimate questions about Jalen long-term with the organization based on a lot of different things here. Okay, second guy I want to get to is Marcus Smart. Two of eight from the field. And I talked about decisions with Jalen Brown. Marcus Smart made some incredibly dumb decisions in this game. Let's get to a couple of them. First of all, how about the flop that he had where he picked up the foul because Kyle Lowry's running down near the sideline, and Marcus Smart just bangs into him and tries to get a foul. That is just dumb. That's not, like, this is the Chris Paul thing from back in the day. Chris Paul used to do this all the time, so the officials are now calling that in the offensive player. What was the upside of that? I don't know what Marcus Smart is thinking there. That was just a really, really dumb decision. Okay, how about the fact that when this team is down 18, Robert Williams gets a putback, okay? They score. Again, Robert Williams scores. The Celtics get two points because Robert Williams gets an offensive rebound. Smart starts bitching to the officials and he gets a technical. You're down 18 points. You can't be giving away points. You scored. What are you complaining about? That's just low basketball IQ. And that was sort of the theme of the night. How about when it's 69-51? 
they had to like stop the game and review the call. He took a shot at Caleb Martin. No, he missed him. I guess that's why. And I don't think they wanted to throw him out of the game. That's why they just called it a common foul. But he legitimately took a shot at Caleb Martin. He just missed. Again, dumb play by Marcus Smart. And then he just, at one point, it's 71-51 in that third quarter. He gets the ball thrown into him like he's sort of in the post. He catches it in one motion by jumping and throws it up at the basket. (laughs) And he bricked it. They go the other way for a wide open three to the Miami Heat. They make it 74-51. I don't know what he's thinking. What I felt like from Marcus Smart in this game tonight, it was fake hustle. It was fake toughness, right? He considers himself sort of to be a leader of this team. The whole dumb narrative about he's the heartbeat of the team and all this different type of stuff, my ass. Those are soft plays. Those are not tough plays. And the one that really aggravated you is the flop on Lowry. I I don't understand that. You did the technical with Rob, like after Rob scores. I mean, it's just dumb stuff that Marcus Smart is doing. And then as for Tatum, he flat out didn't have it. One of seven from deep, six of 18 from the field. And I felt like he in particular let go of the rope. He was begging to get calls from the officials. He had three turnovers. He just lost the ball at times. And I do think with Tatum, there was a give up factor on what was around him. And I don't know this for a fact. Obviously, I couldn't prove this, but I don't think he agreed with the decision to not start Robert Williams. That would be my hunch, right? Because Tatum was carrying the team in the first two games of the series, or at least trying to carry the team. And a lot of that was happening with Robert Williams on the court, setting that high screen for him. And they just decided to remove that from the equation because they didn't start Robert Williams, right? So the chance to get off to a better start were not with Derek White on the court, or they could have been with Derek White, but they certainly were also with Robert Williams on the court. So I think right now, and I'll get into this in greater detail here, and we'll have plenty of time in the offseason, they don't believe in the coach, and the star player doesn't believe in the coach. And if I'm the star player... I'm thinking that my coach is putting me in disadvantageous situations by the lineups he's putting around me. Okay. Brogdon, horrible in this game. 0 of 6 from the floor. 0 of 3 from 3. He's smoking layups. He's bricking threes. He just looked gassed. Didn't have the same energy that he had in the previous two games. And maybe it's catching up to him in terms of the minutes. His minutes have gone up in the postseason. They're playing every other day. That is another thing I noticed about this. The Heat are the better conditioned team. When we agree on that, the Heat are the team that's, and I know some of it's just effort, but they're constantly beating the Celtics down the floor. The transition defense for the Celtics is horrible. So the defense in this game, they had a 135.4 defensive rating after three quarters. The fourth doesn't matter because it was all garbage time. Again, Joe gave up on the game. And look, you're down 30, you're not coming back, but he just gave up. He said, you know, I'm taking the guys. It's kind of like that aggravated me in the last game where they're down what, six points late, it was 111-105, he doesn't use the timeout, he just let go of the rope, right? I mean, that's that's a DNA thing, that's quitting. The coach quit on that in that game. Okay, but anyway, so now if you look at the totality of this postseason, the Celtics have had a defensive rating north of 120 in eight of 16 games. And as I've mentioned before on the pod, the worst team in the NBA this season, the Spurs are at 119.6. So eight of 16 games, 50% of the games this postseason, the Celtics have been worse than 120. And if you juxtapose that to last year, that only happened once with the Celtics team in their 24 playoff games. So look, the guys were bad. There's no denying that. Duncan Robinson was taking guys off the dribble. He took Smart off the dribble. He took Grant Williams off the dribble. He back cut Jalen Brown, just inexcusable stuff from a defensive perspective. But this team that you're playing, the Miami Heat, they're not a good three-point shooting team on the season, right? You think about the fact that in that last series against the New York Knicks, they shot 30.6% from deep. 
in this series, they've already shot 50% from deep twice. They did that three times all season long. And the reason is these threes are just so easy for them to get, right? Because if you think about it, one of the things that sticks out to me about this defense for the Celtics right now, they are so disorganized. And I never remember that being the case when Brad Stevens was the coach or when Ime was the coach. And look, we can point to things that we didn't like about Ime as the coach or things we didn't like about Brad as the coach, but I can never remember their teams being this disorganized on the defensive side of the court. Like there's things I didn't like about the way that Brad ran his offense. I thought too many guys were getting a lot of shots. Like there was that one year where you had five guys taking double digit shots. It's just not how it operates. Marcus Smart took the most shots in an elimination game. That should never happen, right? But in terms of the defense, Brad was always organized, right? Like Remember all the stuff they used to do with Isaiah Thomas where they would hide him, all the pre-switching they were doing. Like, they were really smart, really intelligent, and everybody was on the same page defensively. And I just don't feel like that's the case with this team. I Not that I don't feel it. I know it's not the case. I, I can go back to this game in particular. You look at the end of the first half. They started to find stuff where they were doubling Jimmy Butler, okay? And... You're like, all right, well, maybe Jimmy Butler eventually figures it out, right? Because they just started doing it. Jimmy's one of the best players in the NBA. Odds are he is going to figure it out, but make him figure it out. And you come out of halftime and you're not doing that anymore. You're not doubling Jimmy Butler. He's just singled up again. So I don't understand this. You found something that worked at the end of the first half. You come out of halftime and you go away from that. How, How does that make any sense whatsoever? And the issue that you had in the third quarter as it pertains to then they started to double team They weren't double teaming correctly. So what was transpiring was Jimmy Butler would get into the lane and then the double would come. That's too late. What they were doing at the end of the first half is they were doubling Jimmy Butler on the catch. And that was giving him trouble. If you're bringing the double late after Jimmy has already started to get downhill, he can see the double coming and then secondarily he can kick it to wide open shooters. And this is another thing. Kayla Martin is getting wide open threes. And Joe Mazzulla talked about it in his post-game press conference after the game that part of the issue is they've put smaller defenders on Martin now. So once in a while, when they're doubling, he's going to be open. He shouldn't get open. Caleb Martin should not be getting open. He's shooting 50% from three-point territory in this series. Same thing with Gabe Vincent. You're doubling and you're giving Jimmy Butler. When you do double, you double late and he can totally see where the double is coming from. And these three-point shooters are getting wide open and they're getting open looks, right? And look. I remember if you go back to after game two in the day in between, so Saturday, Jason Tatum was talking about the defense and he mentioned the fact that they can't leave Grant on an island. So this is where I come back to Jason Tatum and sort of where this team's at with the coach. I don't believe they believe in their coach. I believe what we're seeing is a team quitting on the coach right now. And I hate to say that, but that's what it feels like to me because the players knew that what they were doing at the end of the game in game two, they knew that that was wrong. They knew that the way that they were playing defense, where they were just letting Grant Williams singled up on Jimmy Butler getting cooked, they knew that was wrong. And the coach didn't make a change. That's when the coach needs to step in and make a change, is you should have been doubling Jimmy Butler late. Get the ball out of his fucking hands. And the Celtics were not doing that. And when you hear Jason Tatum say that, in between games, we can't leave Grant on an island. That's telling you that he doesn't believe in the coach. Not that he's directly saying that, but what he's saying, he's telling you that the philosophy, that the idea of how they were playing defense at the end of game two, it was wrong. All right. And then they, if you look at it too, you know why this is happening? These issues with the double team? Because it wasn't drilled all season long. 
And you could say, hey, Brian, they worked on this. Maybe they did. Maybe they did work on this prior to the series. Maybe they worked on this Saturday, but you're not getting the results. The double teams are either too late or they're non-existent whatsoever. This is not drilled into them. When Brad was doing this, when Ime was doing this type of stuff, they knew exactly how to execute the game plan. And it just feels like to me right now, this team is disorganized defensively and they're not executing the game plan. And quite frankly, I don't even know if they know what the game plan is. Like that Jimmy Butler thing, and we could say, oh, it's nice. You can see an adjustment every once in a while. And the adjustment was nice at the end of the second quarter. But it just feels like this is all happening in game. This is not stuff the way that they're executing it. Maybe they were working on this prior to the game. But clearly, whatever they were working on, they're not carrying it over onto the court. And that is on the coach. All right. So I just it's crystal clear right now that they have no idea what they're doing defensively. They have no idea whatsoever. And look, a lot, a ton of this is on the players. Like I said, a lot of it is on the players. The effort is bad. The jogging back in transition is horrible. The Celtics lead the league in not identifying shooters in transition. It's incredibly tough to watch that they still give up all these open threes in transition. They also lead the league in guys falling on one end of the court and not getting back. How many times is that going to happen with this team where a guy falls near the basket, they don't get back. Jalen's complaining to the officials, doesn't sprint back, doesn't run back. I understand he was mad that he didn't get a call early in the game. Sprint back on defense, man. There's nothing you can do about it at that particular point in time. But anyway, I just think about all this stuff with Missoula and his philosophy And think about the lineup change, right? I kind of alluded to the issues that I thought Jason Tatum had with it. And I'm not saying that Jason Tatum said that or he truly feels that way. It just feels like if I was Jason Tatum, I would be mad about the lineup change, right? So he puts Derek White in the starting lineup, fine, whatever. But why did he do that? Why did Joe Mazzullo put Derek White in the starting lineup? Because they wanted more threes. They wanted five out. They wanted pace and space. That's what they wanted to do, right? So you heard the guys on the broadcast say it where Stan Van Gundy and Reggie Miller, who obviously have meetings with the coaches, they said they want to take 43s. The Celtics did. So that's why Derek White's in the lineup. They're so obsessed with threes. They shot, they got their 42 up. You know what they did? They shot 26.2% from threes. So congratulations, you got your 43s up. You shot 26.2% because they're not good threes that they're taking. What happened is the Celtics panicked because they looked and they said, oh, we only hit 10 threes in game one. We only hit 10 threes in game two. So that's the problem, right? Joe Missoula has this fixation and this obsession with the math game. And that's where he thought, this is the biggest problem. We need to get more threes up. Anybody watching the first two games would not say that was the problem. It was a late game execution and it was defense. It was not the fact that the Celtics were not getting out of threes up. Now, ideally, you'd like to hit more threes, certainly. But it's almost like the Celtics now, they've become this math team where they're so obsessed at getting to that number. We need to get to 43s that it's consuming them and they're taking bad ones like the ones I allude to with Jalen where it's just at the end of the half that's not a good three the one where he's just way out deep and how many times are we going to see the Celtics take threes where there's no side to side passing right it's come down the court Al's on the wing they kick it to Alley takes a three those aren't good threes they're taking bad quality threes because they're so obsessed with getting to that 40 number right and look I mentioned that taking Robert Williams out of the lineup is about the threes. And ironically, the Celtics, when Rob's on the court, they're great shooting corner threes. The numbers go through the roof when he's on the court. Just telling you, that, that th- those are the numbers. But anyway, I mentioned the Tatum-Rob pick and roll. It was unstoppable. So now that's gone. So just think about it from this perspective. What was working best for the Celtics in the first two games of the series? And especially in game two. And what was working for the Celtics in game seven? 
high pick and roll for Jason Tatum with Robert Williams as the screener. So because you're so obsessed with the math, and so because you're so obsessed with getting to those 43s, you took your best play offensively out of the game to start. That was your decision. You decided, hey, you know what's working best for us? The high pick and roll with Rob. They just ignored that evidence. How could anybody that was watching game two think that the move would be to take Robert Williams out of the starting lineup? Because why? You wanted to play fast. You want to get more threes up. Robert Williams has been the second most impactful Celtic in this series. And you decided willingly to not start him. And you think about the first half. Rob played four minutes and 28 seconds in the entire first half. And part of it is because of the foul trouble, obviously, right? But also, he was naturally going to play less minutes in this game because he was coming off the bench. We went through this, like in game six of that series against Philadelphia, when you put him in the starting lineup, he got up to 28 minutes because he was playing around 20 minutes, 18 minutes prior to that game six. And once Rob got on the court, you felt his impact. And the Celtics decided not to have this guy start. If you really wanted to get Derek White in there and play faster, I would have taken Al Horford out. But you know why they don't take Al out? For two reasons. A, because Al is apparently a three-point shooter, even though he can't hit shit in this postseason. And secondarily, because of the Bam matchup, it's not like Al stops Bam anyway. Bam's eating everybody alive. So if you were going to take a big out of the lineup, it should have been Al Horford, not Robert Williams. I just can't comprehend any team in the NBA saying, hey, you know what we're going to do? The guy that's been the second best player for us in the series, let's not start him. That is clueless. That is coaching malpractice. And if you look at the numbers in game two, with Tatum and Robert Williams on the court together, the Celtics had a 142.5 offensive rating and a 102.5 defensive rating, a plus 40 net rating. So they were outscoring the Heat by 40 points per 100 possessions if you mapped it out with Rob and Tatum on the court together because that play, the high pick and roll with Tatum and Rob is unguardable. And in total, they played 19 minutes together in that game. The Celtics in those 19 minutes outscored the Heat by 16 points. And this is this whole idea. Rob only played, what, 433 in the fourth quarter of that game because why? Joe wanted more three-point shooting out there, right? So in that game where Rob was the second most impactful player on the Celtics in game two, he played 23 minutes. Al played 29. Out of the guys that actually played in that game, the guys in the rotation, only Derek White played fewer minutes than Robert Williams, and he was your second best player. And this is where I just don't understand, and I think this is just philosophically where Joe's at. He wants his big to be a spacer. He wants his big to be a shooter. He prefers Al Horford to Robert Williams, even though anybody watching the past couple of games could realize Robert Williams has been more impactful. Robert Williams has been better. The Heat actually realized when Robert Williams is on the court, they got to be careful going to the lane because they know he can come over and block the shot. We saw the same thing happen against Philadelphia. So let me just give you these numbers. The Celtics, the last four games with Rob on the court, 118.0 offensive rating, 106. One defensive rating. This is the previous four games till tonight. So they're outscoring teams by 11.9 points per 100 possessions with Rob on the court over the last four. They've outscored teams by 30 points with Rob on the court over the last four games. When Rob's off the court, the Celtics have a 100.6 offensive rating, which would be by far the worst in the NBA. 118.0 would be in the top three this year in offense in terms of with Rob on the court. Defensive rating, still good with Rob off the court. But the big thing is the offense. You go from a 118.0 offensive rating with Rob on the court to a 100.6 offensive rating with Rob off the court over these past four games. So Joe Mazzulla is so obsessed with the three-point shooting, so obsessed with getting more threes up that he's just completely ignoring this. Robert Williams' impact has been felt in the last four games. 
And because you have this philosophy about getting more threes up, this is what happens. And then you juxtapose that with Al. Al, okay, this is how we know this whole three-point idea that Joe has. It's complete fucking bullshit. Because if you look at Al on the court, last four games, I gave you the Rob numbers, 118 offensive rating. With Al on the court, 106.4. Would have been horrible in terms of the offensive rating this season. Would have been terrible. With Al off the court, you know what the offensive rating has been over the last four prior to tonight? 121.0. So I don't understand why you keep leaning towards something that's not working. If you wanted to win this game, and if you were intelligent with your game planning, Robert Williams should have been one of the guys that you had on the court for the majority of the game. He's the second most impactful player in this series. And for the Celtics to just go away from Robert Williams, it made no sense. And if you look at those last four games, Al had played 27 minutes more than Rob. Why? Somebody, I gave you all the numbers. All the numbers are telling you they're better with Robert Williams on the court. The impact metrics are through the roof with Rob on the court, and you didn't play him. It's unbelievable to me. It's malpractice. So because he's so fixated on these threes, you take your second best player basically out of the lineup for the majority of the first half. And look, some of that's foul trouble and all that, but you knew he was going to play less minutes going into the game by not starting him. And I just, I can't imagine that the guys in the locker room felt like, wait, this is what we're doing? It, It doesn't make any sense, right? Unbelievable to me. They take bad threes because they're obsessed with taking these threes. They're obsessed to getting to that 40 number. It's unreal. So big picture things here going forward, man. I just wonder what the future of Joe Missoula is because, look, and I said this on Friday, I don't want to be the guy that is always criticizing the head coach. But I would ask you this. Do you think the players believe in the coach? Do you think the players believe in the coach's philosophy? Because I don't. And I think you're seeing that in the effort. Now, it's unbecoming of NBA players to just give up and let go of the rope that they've done this now several times in the postseason. But I clearly don't think that they believe in the coach right now. And it's just been a weird situation all year. Jalen had the interview with Logan Murdoch a couple of months ago where he's talking about he wanted Emei to come back and get a fresh start here. So this whole idea with Joe Mazzulla and the team, it just doesn't feel like they believe in the coach right now. And you think about it, like Nick Nurse is out there. And I know Mike Budenholzer, who doesn't make adjustments, he's out there too. Monty Williams is out there. Like, there's a lot of, and I'm I'm not saying any of those guys are a perfect fit for the Celtics, but I'm just saying, if you go down to this Heat team in embarrassing fashion, which you're on your way of getting swept by the Miami Heat, right? If this happens, you would think that Joe Mazzulla is going to lose his job. I don't know how you could come back with Joe Mazzulla after what we just watched. You don't have time with this group, with this core, to say, hey, this coach is, like, this isn't, he's not coaching a lottery team. He's coaching a team that came into the season as one of the favorites to win the NBA championship and a team that just went to the finals a year ago. You don't have time to, for him to grow on the job. So I would expect that they're going to think long and hard about Joe Mazzulla's future. And I know they gave him the contract, but if the players don't believe in him, that's a real problem. And then the whole Jalen Brown situation is a mess. What are you going to do with Jalen now? After as poorly as he's played in this series, what are you doing? Because we all know that he's not accepting anything that is not the Supermax. He's got one year remaining on the contract. So if you don't offer him the Supermax, you're going to have to trade Jalen Brown. And Jalen's year has been weird. We referenced the Emei stuff. He's questioned Joe Mazzulla after multiple games this season that we've seen in his post-game press conferences. He was upset with the way that the organization handled the Kevin Durant thing. Do you really want to pay Jalen Brown the Supermax? That's a serious discussion 
that this organization is going to have to have. And look, we did the exercise a couple of months ago with B-Rob when these articles were coming out, especially Logan's article. What would a trade look like for Jalen? Because I just don't know if you're winning that trade, if you're putting Jalen Brown out there. So we'll we'll see what that situation is going forward. But that's another question you're going to have to answer. Okay, so if it's not Jalen, don't you think the mix is going to have to change? One of those rotation pieces, and maybe it's Marcus Smart. I know we do this every year with Marcus Smart, but I just think about it from this perspective. Maybe he has too much sort of power and say in that locker room because he was the first guy, right? He was the guy that was drafted before Jason Tatum and before Jalen Brown. And he has taken on a leadership role with this team. Maybe it's time for a different voice, like sort of being that guy, because then the hierarchy of the team is easier where it's Jason Tatum's team. And I know that Jason Tatum is not the most outspoken guy and all that, but you would think a rotation piece is going to have to change. I will also say this. I feel like now looking back at it, and we were all excited at the time because the Celtics started the season 21 and 5. I truly believe that's the worst thing that happened to this team. The 21 and 5 start, you know why? Because they leaned so much into the offense. They leaned so much into taking a shit ton of threes that they built up bad habits. Remember, the defense was not great at the beginning of the season. Now they finished really well. They finished second in defensive rating. But how many times did we talk after a game this year where direct line drives to the basket? Remember the Oklahoma City game? The Houston Rockets ripped them up. Remember the Washington Wizards at the end of the season completely destroyed them. They didn't have Bradley Beal or Kyle Kuzma in that game. So we saw signs all season long where this, yeah, okay, the numbers look good and they can look good at certain times, but you just felt like there are issues defensively. And now we're seeing them in the postseason as well. Now, Joe Mazzulla after the game put it all on himself. He said, I didn't have them ready to play. I have to game plan for them to be ready physically. And then he actually did say, we have to defend, we have to get stops. Finally, he referenced the defense, not the offense in terms of the issue with this team. But that press conference, that just felt like that was, hey, I'm going to go up there. I'm going to take all the blame. I'm not going to throw my players under the bus. It just, it almost felt fake. Like what he was saying, he just kept saying, I have to have them ready. And he was getting follow-up questions. Just like, I got to have them ready. I don't know exactly what it is, but I got to have them ready. So I just feel like now it's three, nothing. (laughs) I would love to be wrong about this. And they come back, they pull off the... 04 Red Sox where they come back against the New York Yankees and they end up winning that ALCS. I just don't see it happening. And I do think you're going to have to see major changes with this team. These are all the questions we had during the regular season. What's going on with Jalen? Is he happy here? And now we're seeing him have a horrible series. Are we sure about Joe Mazzullo? The guy doesn't like calling timeouts. Not calling timeouts has cost him in several times this season. Why is he always referencing the offense? Why is he so sensitive with the media? Hey, are you going to ask me about my adjustments? It just feels like it was all leading to this point. Like the signs were all there, but we thought, okay, maybe the talent will just override all this. And now it's caught up to them and they're in major trouble. And I would expect that major changes are coming to the organization. And the thing that aggravates me more so than anything else, like Jalen's series has been bad. The fact that from my perspective as a Celtics fan, It's embarrassing that they are so disorganized that they don't know what they want to do defensively. That's on the coach. That to me is the most embarrassing thing about this whole situation is they look like they don't know what they're doing defensively. You can live with getting beat, but you can't live with getting beat the way the Celtics are where they look ill-prepared to play. The Heat are a machine. They're doing everything right. And the Celtics don't look like they're ready for that. And I truly believe that they have quit on the coach, that they don't believe their coach can get them to where the other team's coach can get them. 
All right, a lot more to get into. We will get into the Red Sox. Coming up next, so I do want to get to some of your voicemails because I'm sure you guys are fired up after this one. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, Get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Let's get to a couple of your voicemails. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hi, Brian. It's Jack on the Cape again, repeat offender, just here to complain about the, you know, Joe House-deemed Charmin Celtics. Um, Tatum with 14 points, Jalen with another horrible performance. I mean, Gabe Vincent outscoring the both of them, you know, with 29 points. It, it, it's unfortunately just reflective of Missoula not being able to coach up the team. It's like, hey, you know, Tatum's your best player. Get him some looks. Get him some feeds. I mean, you, you see this Miami offense running dribble handoffs at the top of the key, getting open looks for Martin, for Struess. For Robinson, it, and it just seems like on the Celtics' offensive end, it's just whoever dribbles the ball up, everyone clears out, and then they sort of just look at each other. It, it, it's really indicative of the team spirit and um, and the and the lack of coaching authority. I mean, if it, everyone's making jokes, if Ime was here, you know, they'd be playing defense and playing hard. They need someone to ridicule them to, to play a good game to galvanize them. It's it's just sort of disheartening thinking like. You need some sort of hardo here to really get them to play at their best. Why don't they play at their best by their own? And it it makes a little bit of sense once the Heat are up three to nothing in the Eastern Conference Finals and look like that they're going to make another Finals appearance. It's pitiful. It's sad. And you may not hear from me for a while, but um, I don't know what this Celtics team's next move is. Getting rid of Smart Rob, <laughs> not extending Jalen. I don't know, but. There's many questions raised after this, and who knows what this roster is going to look like a year from now. Thanks. Bye. All right. Yeah, I did hear Joe House call him the Charmin Celtics on Bill's podcast, which I think that's appropriate at this particular point in time. How could you argue against it? A couple of things there in terms of the Heat offense. It looks like they know exactly what they want to do. You make a good point in terms of the dribble handoff game, which has been really effective for them throughout this series. And then if you go back to game two, you think about the lack of ball movement, right? The only person on the Celtics team in game two that had one hockey assist was Jason Tatum. He had three in that game, the pass that leads to the assist, right? So that just sort of illustrates the fact that the ball is not flying around whatsoever with the Celtics. And there's a lot of, hey, one pass, let me take a three. It's just not really good offense right now. But in terms of the changes, I'm with you. Something is naturally going to have to come up, whether that's the big thing, take away the head coach, which I think... It's on the table right now. I, I don't know how it could not be. I don't know how the organization can sit back and say, hey, we believe in this guy. And if you're Wick and you're the ownership group, you're going to have a real conversation with Brad like, hey, Brad, I understand we're in a predicament last year and you had to make a quick decision, but this doesn't look like a guy that's prepared for coaching. And I know they like Joe Mazzula and all that, but you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, this guy has just been inadequate in the postseason and he doesn't look like he has the team ready to play. And then you have to ask yourself the Jalen situation. Are you giving him a Supermax? Because we don't know if he's happy here. You read the articles, right? Now, does giving him the Supermax take care of that? But right now, does he look like a Supermax player? He doesn't, right? I'd have a, 
now, like looking back at it right after the season, I'm like, I right, give him the Supermax. I don't know. He does. This is the second straight postseason where he's had massive issues as it pertains to turnovers. And this series that he's having right now against Miami, it's just it's unforgivable from a second team all NBA guy. All right. Who's up next? Brian, it's David from Kentucky. Uh, man, uh, I'm calling you. There's still a quarter to play in this game, but uh, I, I'm actually a pastor. And so I, I do believe in miracles, uh, but uh, I'm not seeing one in, in the Celtics future. Um, just absolutely embarrassing, man. Uh, I, I tweeted at halftime that if, if they're going to play like a poverty franchise and come out in the second half wearing Kings jerseys or Pelicans jerseys, but, but don't come out wearing Celtics jerseys because it's just it's – just, embarrassing um but but rob played well uh so far from what i've seen other than that it's, it's been pretty bad uh, all around uh, i don't think that uh, a performance like this has happened uh with ime as the coach with brad as the coach i don't even you know even doc as the coach man so here's my question uh obviously this team needs changes um whether that's personnel or coaches if it's coaches uh guys like nick nurse are available uh, I think there's a lot of experienced coaches that are on the on the market. Uh, some some guys you can look into. What changes does this team need to make? Is it older guys like Al stepping out of the way so we can add young guys? We don't have a lot of draft picks because of the that moves we've made to add Brogdon and White. Uh, Brogdon's I don't even know that he scored a point tonight uh, through the third quarter. White has been offensively fine, defensively he's been hunted. Uh, is, is it that we get rid of Brown? But man. Um, I don't. I don't even know. Uh, you know, the boss always talks about you know how teams that have something going on behind the, the scenes, you can kind of tell it, and that's what this team looks like right now. Something that maybe we don't know all the details about, uh, but it's yet to come out. But anyway, as always, man, love the show. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, well, I'm glad you have the faith, and I know you said you don't think they're coming back. Naturally, I don't think they're coming back either. But a couple of things there to your point. The easiest thing to do is remove the coach. Because you can see there's there's not a buy-in factor right now. That's that's the easiest move they can make. As it pertains to moving Al, I don't see that. They just gave him an extension. And when you have a guy like Robert Williams, you need a center that is at least durable. And I get that Al's getting up there in age. But when you have Rob, you know that you have to pencil in Rob missing some time. So I can't envision them moving on from Al Horford. The Jalen thing, that, that becomes the number one question. Do you really want to give Jalen a supermax when now... That you're the favorite to win the championship, and this guy in the conference finals has been a complete no-show. I mean, that's a ownership decision, too, if you're really going to move on from Jalen Brown to see what that deal would look like. Because here is the other factor with Jalen Brown, is Jalen is going to have all the leverage in a possible trade, right, for a couple of reasons. Because the team that is trading for Jalen, obviously he has one year left in the contract, and are you going to give up? significant pieces and significant whatever it is draft I would think the Celtics want a veteran player to help them help Jason Tatum win a championship right like that's what the Celtics would be going for but if you're trading a star player or a bunch of really good role players to bring in Jalen Brown how many teams is Jalen Brown going to say hey I'm definitely going to sign with you long term so you're taking a risk as an organization trading for Jalen so Jalen really in a weird way has all the power when it comes to that particular situation. So I think the Celtics are in a really bad situation with the Jalen thing because he doesn't look like a super max player and you're not going to get fair market return in terms of a trade for Jalen because even if you do trade Jalen, the team is not going to have a commitment to say, hey, I'm signing with you long term. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. Extremely concerned Celtics fan here in Chicago. Um, my question to you is, does the Celtics win games ever? 
in the playoffs besides like maybe a blowout here or there over this last four or five year stretch? Or do the other teams just completely implode and lose? Like, I just love to see the team take a game when the other team actually plays well. I know that you have the memory and have the metrics. So I'd love for you to, to, to answer this question. If we actually win games when other teams play well ever, or do the other team just lose? Because it really feels like we're just winning when the other team completely blows it. Thanks. It's a good point. And if you look at it, and they keep talking about it on the broadcast too, but if you look at it in terms of the clutch games this postseason, the Celtics, and obviously tonight would not be categorized as a clutch game because the whole fourth quarter was garbage time, right? But if you look at the clutch games in the postseason, the Celtics are four and six. And they were better in clutch games this season than they were last season, but they've been bad in the postseason. They're four and six in clutch games. You look at the Nuggets, who are on their way to the NBA Finals, they're six and three. You look at the Miami Heat, they're six and two. Even the Lakers are four and two. The Celtics are four and six in clutch games. They don't win these close games. It just, it's a major issue. And just circling back to something I was saying. So you're right. You're spot on. I mean, they do not finish games. They're not good in the clutch. But the other thing I just want to circle back to something I mentioned about Jalen in terms of the leverage he has. The other thing you got to remember, too, is it's if they were going to trade Jalen, it's similar to the Kawhi situation where the Raptors gambled on Kawhi and it was worth it because they won a championship. And that team was done, right? They were not winning a championship with DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. They needed a big piece to come in. So it was worth the risk for them because if they don't win it, what are they doing? They're just going, what, out in the first round, they're losing to LeBron again. So you would have to have that sort of similar situation. But the problem is this, Jalen's not Kawhi. Kawhi had previously the year prior to the trade or two years prior to the trade, he was third in the MVP and he had already won, what, two defensive players of the year. Like he's on a totally different stratosphere. If you trade for Jalen, he's your best player. You're not winning a championship. And what you've seen, he doesn't promote good offense. He's a play finisher, but he's not going to create. He's not going to be the hub of a good offense. Kawhi, even though he's not a great passer, can be the hub of a great offense. Jalen Brown can't do that. So it's just really risky for a team to trade for Jalen. All right, we got time for one more call. Let's do that. Hi, Brian. This is Ross from Delaware, originally from Rhode Island. Big C's fan. I was thinking about the Missoula situation and had a, a, a couple questions for you. The first is they're not bringing in more experienced coaches to help Missoula during the season. Is it thinking there that Brad Stevens is playing a larger role behind the scenes than we're privy to? Is he, is he potentially doing anything on game day? Um, that's part one. The second is, money aside, I was thinking about the interim tag um, and that being removed in February from Missoula. And if I'm him, you know, now that I'm the head coach, right, the expectations are, are that much higher. And, you know, if he gets let go after uh, the playoffs, if the Celtics don't move on to the finals, I think it's going to be that much harder for him to get the next, next job and, um, you know, could hurt his career down the, down the road. So I'm wondering if I'm Missoula, would I have just kept that interim tag and lowered expectations and just kept playing to that throughout the season? Then, you know, I'm just here picking up the pieces uh, from Ime getting let go, and, you know, I'm just here to, to help out, and uh, this is a tough situation. So just wanted to get your thoughts on those two. Again, love the pod. Thanks. All right, those are some good points there. Okay, so the first thing in terms of the veteran coach, that's something that we harped on at the beginning of the season. If you remember, Bill on his pod mentioned Frank Vogel. Like, why didn't they go after a veteran coach like a Frank Vogel to have on the sideline with Joe Missoula? That's something that I would have done as two. I'm not saying it had to be Frank Vogel, but there should have been some experience there to go along with Joe Missoula. And even if you look at it, right, like think about the Nets. The first year they had Steve Nash, they had Ime, who had been with Greg Popovich forever, and they had Mike D'Antoni. So they basically had Ime as a defensive coordinator who was qualified to be a head coach, as we'd find out. He got the Celtics job. 
And Mike D'Antoni, who had put together, and you can criticize Mike D'Antoni all you want, but he had put together some of the greatest offenses we've seen in NBA history, right? And think about that. The next year, they lose Mike D'Antoni. Ime comes to the Celtics. And look, they had a lot of culture issues going on as well, but you needed those stabilizing forces. Joe Mazzulla needed that type of coach to be with them, and he didn't have it. The closest thing he had to it was Damon Stoudemire. And look, I the Celtics, it's not their fault that Damon Stoudemire left to take the Georgia Tech job, right? That's something that was unforeseen. They didn't expect midway through the season that the guy that was basically the lead assistant on the team that was really helping out in terms of people consider him to be the smart whisperer and all that, losing that guy, the guy that had NBA experience, right, who played in big NBA playoff games, you lose him in the middle of the season. That's just the gut punch, right? Because Will Hardy was already gone. Ime, of course, he had his whole situation. So those guys are gone. And Damon Stoudemire is like the veteran that Joe Mazzulla needed to lean on. And he's out of the equation as well, which does bring up this too. Like you do wonder that decision. Former NBA player, and I know that he had been a collegiate coach as well, was on Ime's staff. You wonder if, why didn't Damon Stoudemire, like Damon Stoudemire was on the front row last year. And I talked about this at the time when they decided to promote Joe Mazzulla as the head coach. It was a little bit surprising to me that it wasn't Damon Stoudemire that got the gig. And look, I'm not telling you that we can guarantee that he went to Georgia Tech. It's not like he's an NBA job. I'm not telling you we can guarantee that Damon Stoudemire was going to be a great coach, but I'm kind of surprised that it went that way. In terms of the last part that you asked about the interim tag with Joe Mazzulla, should he have kept that? No. I mean, if you're Joe Mazzulla, you want the contract, right? I don't I don't know why you would keep the interim tag. You don't say, hey, I don't want the contracts. I, I don't really agree with you when it comes to that, but I do agree with your larger point in terms of they needed a veteran stabilizing force and the Celtics coaching staff, there's not a lot of those guys, right? So that's why, and if you watch these games, even again in this game three, it's Al Horford that like is trying to talk to the team and try to fire the team up. And it's always Al and Smart that are talking about sort of like the tactical stuff. You see Al at points and Smart the other day has got the clipboard out of practice. You see Al like pointing to stuff in terms of what to do. And I think that there is sort of this thing with the team where they trust those guys more than they actually trust the coaching staff. All right, so by the way, game four, we're going to record again on game four, which comes up on Tuesday night. If you want to leave us a voicemail after that one, 617-396-7172, the number. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. So just a really, really rough night for the Celtics as it looks like they're on their way to getting swept out of the Eastern Conference Finals. So just a really, really rough night. A really rough couple of nights here. They should have won game two. They let that one game away. They they or they let that game get away. They completely let go of the rope in this one. It just it's ugly. Uh, it's really ugly right now. It's really difficult to watch. All right, before we go for the night, I do want to get to some Red Sox. So we'll do that next. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. 
This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. I did want to get to the Sox because they just took two of three from the Padres, had an opportunity, of course, to clinch the series on Sunday afternoon. Unfortunately, they lose on Sunday and Corey Kluber was bad. We'll get to him in a second here because it doesn't look like he can start too many more games for the Red Sox the way that he's going right now. I did want to mention this, though, and it's kind of interesting because if you go back in time to when Xander Bogarts signed with the San Diego Padres, I mean... Myself and Bilk came on with me. We did this emergency pod about Bogarts leaving the organization, getting that ridiculous contract, of course, with the Padres, signed through his 40-year-old season in 2033, like crazy, the lifespan of that contract, right? And at the time, like the big critique was, well, they could have already had this deal done if they just offered him a fair deal prior to last year. And that's all true. But if you just look at the Padres deal that they got Bogarts on, it's going to be a miserable, miserable contract. And it's already starting to sort of look that way, right? Because, and look, I'm sure Xander will bounce back and you're playing your former team. It's difficult. He goes 0 of 11 in the series. He got robbed by Devers on a play today. He got robbed by Verdugo on a play the other day. So he got robbed a couple of times. But the point being, he was 0 for 11. And this is a guy that you signed. This is supposed to be like his best year with the team, right? You would think just based on the age. And I'm not justifying how the Red Sox handled Bogarts. But if they matched anything like that, it would just be irresponsible. That is an absolutely horrific contract that the Padres have given Xander. And I love Xander as a player. And if I was his agent, I'd be like, you're an idiot if you don't take that contract. Right? I mean, it's a ridiculous deal. So if you look at this, and even Alex Cora came on this podcast and said, you got to take that contract if you're Xander Bogarts, right? Based on the money that's there. But if you look at Bogarts numbers in May entering Sunday, because of course the numbers from Sunday haven't finalized in terms of how he ranks around the league. In May, and this number actually is going down because, of course, he didn't get a hit today, 180 in the month of May, which is 169th out of 187 qualified hitters. This is Xander Bogarts, 286 on base percentage, which is 147th. And how about this one? 230 slugging percentage. That's 183rd out of 187 qualified hitters. He's hitting for no power whatsoever. In fact, this entire month, he only has three extra base hits. This month, Xander Bogarts, who we all know is not a big-time strikeout guy, he has more strikeouts than he has hits, okay? And everything is on the ground. 51% ground ball rate, the 28th highest rate. The launch angle is at 5.6 degrees. And anything between 0 and 10, that's a ground ball, right? 10 to 20 is going to be a line drive. So everything's on the ground with Bogarts. And if you're the Padres right now, that team is not having a good season. They have a bunch of guys that are making a lot of money when we're talking about the Manny Machados, the Fernando Tatises of the world, and Xander Bogarts. We'll see what happens with them and Juan Soto long-term if he ends up signing a long-term contract extension with them. This team's going to be even more expensive, and they just really don't look like a great team that has the capability of making a run in the postseason. Bogarts being your big-ticket item in the offseason, it feels like, to me, they are going to regret that contract. And I know most teams do, but I don't know if Xander is going to give you the upside over the next two years or so to even justify the beginning of the contract. He looks really bad at the plate right now. Looks like he's thinking through a lot of different things. And I feel bad for him, obviously, because he's with a new team. He wants to play well, but he does not look comfortable at the plate right now. And like I said, I know this weekend 
you're dealing like him and Rafi. They were laughing at each other and he was laughing when Rafi hit that home run the other night. So I get it. It's weird playing the Red Sox. But what we saw this weekend from Bogarts is what we've seen or what the Padres fans have seen basically the entire month of May. He's been a bad player this month. All right. I did want to get to Kluber because this is the story after Sunday. Just a complete mess. First inning, walks Tatis, and then walks Xander, and he walks Carpenter. And he walked Carpenter with the bases loaded to bring it around. I mean, it's just three walks in the first inning of the game. And if you look at the numbers entering today, 8.4% walk rate for Corey Kluber. That's up from 3.0%. So if you look at that 3.0% last year, his walk rate, that was the best among starters in Major League Baseball. So from a percentage standpoint, he walked the fewest guys in the sport. This year, that 8.4% number is 72nd out of 119 starters that have thrown at least 30 innings entering play on Sunday. So he went from being an elite guy in terms of his command and control to well below average. He's bad right now, and it's getting worse. It's not like this is getting better. Today's the worst I've seen him pitch, and he's had some bad outings. He didn't know where the fucking ball was going at all in this game. And then, of course, in that same inning, in the first inning, he has a full count to Odor. He throws him a brutal curveball middle-middle. He makes it a 4 to nothing game, clears the bases, and this is a guy that came into the game hitting 167. Couldn't put down a guy that was hitting 167. The second inning, Sullivan, who came in hitting 200 in the game, he singles on an 87.5-mile-per-hour sinker. This guy's throwing 87.5-mile-per-hour sinkers. That's how bad it is right now for Kluber. And obviously, the velocity has been down for a couple of years now, but he doesn't have command at all. I mean, I referenced those three walks, so he walked... Three guys, 23.1% walk rate in this game. Brad Keller is last in Major League Baseball at 19.9%. So, I mean, it's just, it's really, really bad right now. And then you start to look at some of the other things, just the strike throwing in general. Out of the pitches that he threw, so he threw 64 pitches, 35 were strikes. That's 54.7%, which if you look at it, only one qualified starter is south of 60%. He's at 54.7% as it pertains to the strike throwing in this game, the whip entering today is at 1.47, 90th of those starters have thrown at least 30 innings. And that was at 1.21 last year, which is above average. Like he was good last year for the Rays. The big one too is because the command's not there, we reference the walks, but also the hard hit rate, which that means, of course, I, I reference that a lot, but balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour. So that was at 34.7% last year, which was good. Now it's at 46.1%, which is 97th out of those pitchers that have thrown at least 30 innings. So it's a lot of loud contact. It's a ton of walks. And he didn't even make it out of the third inning. He <laughs> recorded seven outs. He's on the hook for five runs after the Carpenter home run. He hit the home run off Blyer, who Blyer has not been impressive whatsoever either. But then Soto had singled off a cutter prior to Carpenter and Cora said, I've seen enough. I'm not even letting him face the lefty now. Unfortunately, the lefty you brought out gave up the home run, but I didn't disagree with the move that Cora made. You couldn't keep trotting this guy out there. He couldn't get outs, right? So entering today, he had 11 home runs and eight starts. So good thing is he didn't give up a home run. So it was 11 and nine now, but the home runs per nine, 2.52, which is 115th out of 119 starters. So he's just giving up, uh, giving up home runs left and right. He's given up loud contact left and right. And I actually truly felt bad for him after the game because you can tell he's just overthinking it. I was watching him on the postgame press conference with Nesson, and he was saying that he's trying to do things in between starts and he thinks that he's making too many adjustments. 
So first and foremost, the adjustment, whatever it is that he's making, isn't working. So he says he's like almost getting caught in between. So he's working on all this stuff. And that's you can see it like his mind is racing when he's on the mound because he's thinking through this stuff because he's had so many issues this year that he can't figure out the right delivery. He can't figure out the right mechanics. And it's really fucking with him mentally. And now I start to think about it. Whitlock's going to come back and pitch next weekend. Alex Cora said after the game that Kluber is getting another start next weekend, which we'll see how long that lasts because it appears with Whitlock coming back. That means for the moment, it's going to be a six man rotation. Tanner Houck is going to be starting still. So when you or he's going to be starting coming up here. So when you sort of categorize all those different things together with all these guys in the rotation, I just wonder how much longer you can justify having Kluber there because Two and a third, and look, you already won the series. Like, you took the series, you won two of three, which is great, but this is a Padres team that is playing really bad baseball right now. You have an opportunity, and look, the offense didn't come alive at all. They didn't hit in this game. Michael Walker on the other side just completely mowed them down. Obviously, he's got familiarity with the team, but they have familiarity with him, too. I'm not making that up as an excuse. And the Walker thing is, he's got a bizarre contract. It's four for 26, but there's a player option. There's club option. It's just a really weird contract. He wanted, of course, multiple years and the Red Sox were not willing to go there. But that's like sort of the concern, right? Like I get why they didn't want to give Waka multiple years because the guy's always hurt. But the thing that you thought with Kluber is you were guaranteed a strike thrower that was going to eat up innings, right? That was like the game plan with the Kluber thing. Obviously, they wanted Nate. Nate goes to Texas, so they have to counter and get Kluber. And the one thing that you thought, like unlike Waka, as good as he was for the Red Sox, he wasn't durable. So the one thing that you thought you were getting with Corey Kluber is he's going to give us a ton of starts. He's going to give us a ton of innings and we're going to be in these games. We know we have one of the best offenses in baseball coming into the season. We'll be fine with Corey Kluber. And the problem is right now, he can't even give you three innings in this game on Sunday. So we'll see what his next start looks like. But I don't believe he's going to be in the rotation much longer than that. I, and it's not like Corey's going to announce after the game that he's done in the rotation. It's just at this particular point in time. You can't justify keeping this guy out there if he has another bad one. And right now, I don't even know if you can keep doing it because it looks really, really ugly. Really ugly. Okay, something that doesn't look ugly, though, is Chris Sale. So Sale on Saturday, seven innings, just the two hits, two home runs, both of the solo variety, of course, which is fine. Juan Soto got him in a four-seamer. He ambushed him, first pitch of the at-bat, and Tatis with a slider, which that actually wasn't even a bad pitch. That was a really nice piece of hitting by Tatis. Oh, by the way, speaking of Tatis, if you missed this, you can probably find it on social media if you weren't watching the game. <laughs> he, he he had a pitch coming right at him and he went backwards. I don't know how he didn't fall. He went backwards and like caught himself, like caught his weight and popped back up. It was an amazing. I never seen that before, but uh, he was like doing the limbo or something. So if you didn't see that on social media, I advise you check that out. But anyway, overall sale nasty again. He has the eight strikeouts. The velocity with the heater is still there. Ninety five point four. He hit 97.6, so he looks really good. He's constantly working from ahead right now. And the command is what is so important right now because we know that the horizontal break on the slider isn't what it once was, but if he's working from ahead, you're going to get more bad swings against that slider and you're going to get more chases, right? So if you look at it in terms of the slider on Saturday, eight called strikes, he had six whiffs, very effective pitch. And then the four-seamer, he got eight whiffs and he got nine called strikes. So he had a great fastball and he had a really good slider as well. And when you're getting that amount of called strikes, it means A, you're hitting your spots and B, you have guys confused because you're not, they're not pulling the trigger, right? So because he's putting himself in advantageous counts, right? Because it's 0-2, it's 1-2. He's putting himself in good positions. So that means he has the hitters off balance. 
So if a hitter is up there and he's looking for the slider and sales come in with 96, 97 up in the strike zone, sometimes guys can't even pull the trigger because it's tough to do that when you're gearing up for the slider. Or if you're looking for the fastball and he comes with the slider, when he's working from ahead, that's the big thing that he didn't have in April. When he's working from ahead and he's throwing your looking fastball, and then all of a sudden that slider comes and it's coming at your back foot. If you're a righty, you're in massive trouble. So he just looks like the guy that we saw pre-Tommy John, which I could not be more excited about this. I re- And I thought that he was going to have a really good season. You guys heard me saying that before the year began, but I was worried. I mean, I was watching those first couple of starts of the season. I was as worried as anybody because he didn't look right. And now he looks right. He really does. And the big thing, too, is 70.6% first pitch strike rate. That is what I'm telling you about constantly working from ahead. Constantly working from ahead. This is in the month of May, by the way. So then you look at his numbers in May. 33.8% strikeout rate. Fifth among 81 qualified starters. This is Chris Sale stuff. His strikeout to walk ratio is 30%, which is fourth in Major League Baseball during that stretch among starters in the month of May. 14.1 swinging strike rate, which is sixth among starters. All these numbers are ridiculous. The hard hit rate, the balls off the bat 95 plus. We're referencing this with Corey Kluber. With Chris Sale, 48 batted balls in the month of May. 14 are hard hit. That's it. 29.2%, which is sixth in Major League Baseball during that stretch. This is the vintage Chris Sale. Soft contact and strikeouts. Right now, he looks like a legitimate bona fide ace. In March and April, that hard hit rate, that was at 38.8%, which was 43rd. As I reference right now, 29.2% in May, it's down nine percentage points. It's all because of the command. So Sale is getting opponents in the month of May to swing at 37.9% of the pitches out of the strike zone, which is a ridiculous number. It's the third highest rate during the stretch in the month of May. In March and April, That number was at 30.1%, which is good. That's 28. But you're talking about 37.9%, right? He's right above or right behind, rather, Spencer Strider, who's like the king of strikeouts right now in Major League Baseball, unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, for the Red Sox. And I would have liked to, selfishly, I would have liked to watch Strider pitch against the Red Sox, but he's one of the nastiest guys in the game. This is the neighborhood right now that Chris Sale is living in. This is where Chris Sale is right now. It's phenomenal to watch. So, It was just a little something off earlier in the season with the command because you could tell like even when he was getting hit hard, right, like the Orioles game to begin the season, he was still getting a shit ton of swings and misses, right? There was just the one game where he didn't really get the swings and misses, but it was just sort of like, okay, the command's off, right? Like the home runs, it just pitches middle, 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 middle. We're seeing all these meatballs, right? Right in the middle of the strike zone. And now he has command. So when you get to 3-1 or even 2-1, You're going to get a lot of bad swings, or excuse me, when you get to one, two, you're going to get a lot of bad swings on that slider. But when Chris Sale earlier in the season, when it's three, one or two, one, you can eliminate that pitch, right? So that's why he wasn't getting a ton of swings and misses at times. And he wasn't as nasty earlier this season. It's because of the fact that, well, hey, if I'm in a three, one count and Chris Sale is there, I've eliminated the slider. I'm just looking for fastball. You become predictable when you're constantly working from behind. And that is unfortunately where Chris Sale was earlier this season. Now that's not happening. I mean, watch Chris Sale pitch. How often do you see him in a 3-1 count? How often do you even see him in a 2-1 count? The guy is constantly working from ahead. He's a strike-throwing machine right now, and that just sets up everything for later on in the at-bat, and that's why he's getting all those strikeouts. So I could not be more excited about Sale. Paxton, by the way, the other night, Friday night, ton of fastballs. He threw 60 fastballs, which is insane. 60 of 107, living at 96.1. This is a big thing with him, of course. Coming back from the Tommy John a couple of years ago, last year, he's dealing with the lat situation. 
So you're wondering, hey, is the velocity going to be there? Because we've seen with Chris Sale, who we're just talking about, of course, it took a while for him to get to that velocity, right? In 2021, he didn't have it. Now, Paxson is a couple of years removed from the Tommy John, but you were wondering, was he going to have his velocity? And he does. I mean, it's ridiculous. And I was thinking about this, too. One of the things I wanted to check on was, hey, is this kind of like an insane amount of fastballs? This is where he lived. Like, if you go back to 2017, 27 through 2019, this guy was incredible, right? Boy, one of the best strikeout pitchers in Major League Baseball in the top 10. So in 17, he was at 65.5% fastballs. In 2018, he's at 63.6 and 19, 59.9%. Like ordinarily, I would say you can't throw that amount of fastballs, but this is what he was doing when he was successful as well. And you look at it so far, 17 batted balls uh, so far this season and not a lot of hard hit. You're looking at 23.5% as it pertains to the hard hit rate, which that number is incredible. So through two starts, he's north of 96 miles an hour. And you say, hey, 11 innings, 14 strikeouts. This is massive. You've now had two starts, his fastball. And you can tell sometimes like when guys are throwing 96, but it's a hard 96, it looks easy for Paxson. Right? I'm not saying it's like Bayo. Bayo throws the ball like 98 and you're like, how the fuck did he do that? Right. It just looks so easy from like Pedro, like when Pedro would throw 96, it looks easy for him. Right. With Paxton, it looks easy for him. It really does. So this is huge because it's a major development now that Pavetta is in the pen and the issues that we reference with Kluber. Like now Paxton, can he be a dependable guy going forward? It looks that way. I mean, I get it. It's only two starts, but there's not like any red flag when you watch him pitch. You say, hey, he's getting lucky or anything along along those lines. He's not giving up a lot of hard contact, made a couple of mistakes here and there, but the fastball is really good. So this is another major development. As bad as Kluber was, Paxton has been really, really good for this team. So maybe now what you can get is Paxton is the guy, except better, that you thought you were getting in Kluber, right? Where you can depend on Kluber every five days. That's what you thought you were getting at the beginning of the season. Clearly, that's not the case. But did anybody say coming into the season, hey, we can depend on Paxton every fifth day? No, nobody thought that was the case. And I understand that he's dealt with a lot of injuries. So knock on wood that he can stay healthier. But that's a major development. One other thing I wanted to mention that I believe is totally different with this Red Sox team compared to teams we've seen in the past. And I'm saying over the past three to four years, even in 2021, when they made that run to the American League Championship Series is, and look, Emmanuel Valdez went down. They said it was precautionary today. He's going for a ground ball. It, lo- it looked like to me like a knee. I don't know exactly what it was. They didn't say. They just said they took him out for precautionary reasons. Seems like he's going to be okay. But you go back to the game on Saturday night. And remember, this is a guy that got in the Christian Vasquez trade, which Everybody was mad about the Christian Vasquez trade at the time. I didn't mind <laughs> it whatsoever. I always felt like Christian Vasquez was bad calling games. He was overrated by the fan base. I was never the biggest Vasquez guy. My biggest issue with the trading deadline is they tried to do two things at once. They tried to add when you're talking about bringing in the Reese McGuire's of the world, right? But they also tried to, in a weird way, sell. So they did both things. And if you were going to sell, like you needed to pick one direction, get rid of J.D. Martinez, pick up some value for JD, right? Like that's the thing that didn't make sense to me at the deadline, but I never minded moving on from Vasquez. If you like a couple of prospects in the Astros organization, go ahead. And Valdez has real power. He hit the three-run bomb, a slider down in the zone, golfed it. Now, like I said, we'll monitor this, hope he's okay, but it doesn't look to be anything serious. But the one thing I'll say about the Red Sox is entering Sunday, this is where I reference the depth. They're really good at sort of the role guys, not the main guys on the team, right? I'm not talking about the Verdugos of the world or the Yoshidas of the world. These role guys, this is where, and I know people get caught up in the whole Tampa comparison with High and Bloom when people don't like the Tampa comparison. Well, they've been one of the best teams in the sport for the past decade now. 
And one of the things that they always have is depth. Like, think back to 2021. It's like, okay, Austin Meadows is going to play in this game because there's a righty on the mound. But if there's a lefty on the mound, they're not going to do it. Like, they had two different lineups. And the <laughs> the Red Sox kind of resemble this right now. And it's even going to be deeper when they get Story and Duvall back. And Duvall said the other day, of course, he's targeting that Yankee series. But if you look at it in terms of what they've done, Valdez entering this game on Sunday, he had 63 plate appearances, okay? 54 of them had come against right-handed pitchers. And of course, he faces Waka in the game on Sunday. He was 17 of 50 entering play on Sunday. So 340, this is against righties, 389, 600, and a 989 OPS. So eventually, if you want him to be like a big-time player for you down the road, he's going to have to hit lefties too. He doesn't have a hit off a lefty, but he doesn't have many plate appearances against him. But this is where I look at this team and I say they're deep is... You can have a lefty-heavy lineup. Like, if you look at the lineup, the Reds, and I know they lost the game, but if you look at the lineup the past two nights, two righties, they had two righties in the lineup on Saturday night to the Red Sox, and Kike and Connor Wong, and in the game on Sunday, they started with just one righty in the lineup, Kike. That was it, which is crazy. I like The Red Sox have all this versatility. It's something I'm not used to. You think about Tapia coming off the bench. He gets on base in the ninth inning, not that it mattered, but him, same thing that we talk about with Valdez. Tapia is a role player, and he brings speed, which is something the Red Sox didn't have last year. Now, obviously, this year they have Duran up, and he can run like crazy. We all know that. But if you look at Tapia, he's got speed. He has been really good as a pinch hitter, which is a very difficult thing to do. He understands his role with the team. And again, they set him up for success. Against righties this year, it's 53 of his 68 plate appearances. He's hitting 282, and he's got a 365 on base percentage. So another guy where they said, okay, we think he can handle right-handed pitching. We think he could be a pinch hitter. We think he can bring some speed. He's not going to play every day for us, right? He's not going to play against lefties, but he can play against righties, and he's been really successful. And then you think about it on the other side of things with Rob Refsnyder. Refsnyder is an incredible hitter against left-handed pitching. We discovered that last year as Red Sox fans, right? So 56 of his 82 plate appearances entering play on Sunday, he didn't play in this game, of course, had been against lefties. What are his numbers against lefties? 354, 446, 479. 926. So all of these guys that I mentioned, Valdez, when this team is healthy, and hopefully he's healthy, knock on wood with that, Tapia, and Ref Snyder, all these guys are bench pieces. Th- these are not everyday players, but they're the perfect role players for this team. It really does remind me of what the Rays used to do, and the Rays still do to this point. They have, you know, the Wander Francos are going to play every day. Rosa Reina is going to play every day, but they have those guys that only play against righties or only play against lefties. So this is sort of I like the way they've built this team where it's, okay, we have our stores, we have Devers, we have Yoshida, Verdugo's having this really good breakout season, and then we got to pick guys, the role players have got to have certain strengths. Hey, can you clobber lefties? Hey, can you clobber righties? And they've really done a good job answering that. Okay. And remember, as I referenced, this is without Duvall, basically, for a large portion of the season, and Trevor Story hasn't even made his debut, and when Trevor Story comes back, your defense gets a lot better as well. Now, the one thing about Valdez, defense is not good. He's at minus three defensive run save. That's got to get better, but he's never been profiled as a good defensive player. Not good there. Okay. Then you look at this Red Sox lineup in general and how deep they are. And I know they had a difficult game on Sunday, but as we alluded to, they do win the series. They entered play Sunday. Batting average, they were third at 269. On base percentage, they were fourth at 339. Slug, 449 third. OPS, 789 fourth. The strikeout rate is fourth, which this is the big thing that I said before the season. They got to stop striking out. They struck out way too much the past couple of years, even though it wasn't like they were in the bottom half of the league. But 
what we've seen is these recent World Series teams, with the exception of the Braves, all these teams don't strike out a lot. And the Red Sox, especially with the new rules, they've taken advantage of that by some of the guys they brought in, the Turners and the Yoshidas of the world. Turner's down with a banged up knee right now, too. It's another guy that Turner is, he's a stud. I mean, this guy clobbers righties, he clobbers lefties, having outstanding months. Hopefully he's good as well. They're first in doubles and runs per game, they're third, okay? And if you look at, of the players that, for this team, well, metric man breakdown here of how deep this lineup is. So of the players with at least 80 plate appearances for the Red Sox this year, five players are hitting north of 275. Ref Snyder's at 275, Turner's at 279, Yoshida's at 295, Verdugo at 303, and Duran at 343. Five players with an on-base percentage north of 370, which is, 370 is outstanding, okay? Turner 370, Yoshida 373, Verdugo 381, Ref Snyder at 390, and Duran at 398. To have five guys that have an on-base percentage north of 370, this team is a bitch to pitch to right now, with the exception of Michael Walker on Sunday. But anyway, they took the first two games. They have four players now with an OPS north of 800. Duran 951, Verdugo 866, Yoshida 863, Devers at 847, okay? And Devers, this is the big thing about this lineup. Rafi even mentioned prior to the game on Sunday that he's had an average season so far. I would say that. Now, of course, he had the big home runs the other night, but he's had an average season, like in terms of on base percentage, batting average, power numbers are really good for Rafi, but he has had an average season. You would think if the Red Sox were in this position that they are now, which is what, 26 and 21, Rafi would be having like an MVP caliber season, like in the conversation for the MVP in terms of the season he's, he hasn't. So, you know, that's eventually going to come as well. So that's one of the more amazing things about the way this lineup is raking, and Rafi hasn't even had a great Rafi season. Like, if you look at 2019, he was better. 2021, he was better. And for the majority of 2022, until the injury is better than he was this year. And they're still winning games. Three players with a strikeout rate south of 15%. That's what I said. That's the thing I love. Yoshida's at 9.5. 9.5%. Verdugo's at 13.7, and Turner's at 14.6. So having all these guys at the top end of the lineup, it's just massive to... Have these guys that you can't strike out. Oh, Turner is an incredibly difficult at bat. I love Turner too. Like he just falls off pitches where you know he's not even trying to put him in play. He's just trying to spoil the at bat until he gets the pitch he wants. He's, he's an artist up there at the plate. All right. I did want to mention Yoshida. So now he's hit safely in 13 of his 16 games in the month of May. And yeah, because he got a hit today. So it's now 13 of 16. He's had two hits or more in seven of those 16 games. So for the month entering today, 323, 373, 532, 905. The guy was 20 of 62 entering play on Sunday. He had just five strikeouts in 67 plate appearances, 7.5%. The hard hit balls, 26 of 57, 45.6%. Here is just some crazy ones. The swinging strike rate is at 4.4%, seventh. So only 4.4% of the pitches to Yoshida are swinging strikes. That's how rare it is to get this guy to miss. The zone contact rate, so in the strike zone, 96.6% contact rate, which is fifth. <laughs> if you throw a pitch in the zone, he's not missing it. And the strikeout rate, as I mentioned, is fifth in the month of May at 7.5%. So that's huge. Okay, another issue we talked about Kluber is Canley Jansen. He did not look right again on Saturday night, and I know he got out of it, but two walks in that ninth inning. He had issues with violations last weekend, but you look at it now, three outings. His last three outings have been bad. Two of them, the, Friday, a week, the game a week ago Friday, 
the Paxton debut, and then, of course, the game on Saturday night, the sale game, he cost you both those games, right? Because he couldn't figure it out. And then he didn't have it again in the ninth inning on this Saturday against the Padres, and you're starting to get worried about this guy. Ever since he came back from the injury, it doesn't look like the same guy. And he's now walked six of his last 16 hitters that he faced. 37.5%. That is an absolutely atrocious number. Right now, he has no idea where the ball's going. And the other component to this is he doesn't have a strikeout during that stretch. So they got to get him back on track. I believe that we already saw how nasty he has been earlier this season. I feel like that one that one is something they'll figure out. I'm not overly concerned about it, but they got to hurry up and get this guy back on track because he's already cost you two games this season, which obviously is not ideal whatsoever. So hopefully they can get him back on track. Oh, one note on the bullpen that I did like, Jolie Rodriguez is back and he looked good. And I get it that his first outing of the season, it's his first outing of the season. He was bad. He didn't look good at all. But on Sunday, he looked pretty good. That was pretty impressive stuff from Rodriguez. You look at it in that game, 11 pitches, he had two whiffs, and he had four called strikes, and he had two strikeouts. So the stuff, I mean, the movement that he gets on that changeup is ridiculous. Like, that was one of the reasons to stick with this game on Sunday is the way that Rodriguez threw the ball. So that's definitely something to get going. And the big thing with him is we think about matchups late in games. He's actually better against righties than he is lefties. And he he's got good numbers against lefties, too. The one issue that he's had throughout his career is the control. That obviously was not an issue in the game on Sunday. But he's in the 94th percentile last year in chase rate. And you can understand why, right? Why would guys swing at pitches out of the zone? You see how much he gets his changeup to move. It's ridiculous. And last year, opponents hit 184 against that changeup. So now when you start to look at this team, there is questions right now in the rotation. Who's going to stay in? Who's going to be out and all that? And we've had conversations like if it was me I would put Cutter Crawford in the rotation I would remove Corey Kluber but I understand that this is a 10 million dollar investment so it's probably not going to happen as quickly as we sort of want to see it happen but the reality of the situation is I would just rather have Crawford in that rotation and I believe as I mentioned I can't remember if it was on Thursday's pod or Tuesday's pod this guy's a strike throwing machine but the rotation right now, I feel good about the top three. I feel really good about Sale. I feel really good about Pax. And I feel really good against Bayo, about Bayo. Those are three guys, right? <laughs> How many teams right now definitively can say they have three guys they feel good about? And I know I'm taking a risk here with the injury history of the Sales and the Paxons of the world. Garrett Whitlock in his final rehab start, if you will, the velocity's up and the change up the... One issue that we had earlier this season is the changeup of the fastball in terms of the velocity. The gap had never been closer. That seems to have widened out since he made his way back. So if Corey Kluber doesn't work out, it's just not the worst thing in the world because this team has options. And the other thing I would say about this is they also now have some options in the bullpen. Hopefully Jansen gets back on track. But as of right now, Winkowski had a little bit of a dip, but now he's back to the guy we saw at the beginning of the season. And you do have the option at some point if you want to put Hulk out there. I would do that. I don't believe Hulk's a starter. I've been over that a bunch of different times. And then you start to think about Martin's been really good for this team. If Rodriguez can give you something, you now are starting to come up with some options in this bullpen as well. So this team, I think, is a lot better than most people thought. I thought they were a fringy playoff team. I did not expect the lineup to be as good as it is. I thought they'd have a really good lineup, but... You can have an argument. <laughs> it's basically after the Rays and the Braves, they're like the best offense at baseball right now, which is something, quite frankly, I wasn't ready for, especially like that I mentioned earlier when Rafael Devers hasn't even had a great season. The, the Durant thing's been awesome. The Verdugo thing's been awesome. And they're going to get Story and Duvall back. So I'm very excited to watch this team going forward because I really, really think that this is going to be a fun season. And at one point, we were wondering, are we going to have a baseball season in Boston? Fuck yeah, we're having a baseball season in Boston, which is awesome. All right. 
As always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. We will be back with you after game four on Tuesday night, Seltzen Heat, of course. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.